0: Okay, here we go. My guest on today's episode is Jill Miller, a fascial expert who has 30 years of corrective movement expertise that forges links between the works of yoga, massage, athletics, and pain management. Her signature self care fitness programs called Yoga Tune Up and The Role Model are found at gyms and yoga studios and hospitals and athletic training facilities around the world. Jill is also a former anatomy columnist for Yoga Journal and has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Shape, the Today Show, the list goes on and on. And she is also the author of the book The Role Model, a step-by-step guide to erase pain, improve mobility, and live better in your body. She's also the creator of dozens of instructional programs like Walking Well with Katie Bowman that you may have heard me talk about because I'm a big fan. And also Treat While You Train with Kelly Starette, And her next book, which is coming out very soon, is called Body by Breath, the science and practice of physical and emotional resilience. Jill lives in LA with her husband and two rescue dogs, which you may actually hear in the background of this episode occasionally because, well, they're a little rambunctious. But anyway, here we go with my interview with Jill Miller. But before we get started... As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But If you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest vice, I'm what you would call a coffee snob. If you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com coffee. I've been aware of your work and following your work for a very long time now, and I've always known you as the fascial expert. And I love that because so many people know that we have fascia and they've seen it when they're eating like a... a I ate a, a cut of beef the other day that had a lot of fascia still in it and was like, hey, that's the stuff I foam roll. But anyway... My meals aside, I've been following you for quite a while, as in your yoga tune-up and and all your your fascial work. But you're now you've got this book coming out that's all about breathing. But I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about self massage before we get into breathing because that's a huge topic. But I really wanted to to talk about some self massage. Like, how effective is it really to do massage on yourself? Like, don't we have to go to a a registered massage therapist and have somebody else do us? Can Can we actually do it to ourselves?
1: Well, Brock, thank you for having me. And that is is my favorite topic. Um, Yeah, massaging your steak uh, prior to (laughs) cooking. You know, foam rolling your steak. uh, Maybe somewhat effective. I I do hear that the Japanese do that with some of their one of some of their beef. They actually massage uh, actually the the
0: cows in the pasture. Oh, to be a Japanese cow!
1: <laughs> I think so. I think so. So yes, you you don't need to be a registered self massager to touch yourself and do therapy on yourself. You don't need to be a licensed licensed to touch uh, at, at all. You are an empowered you. And if you don't touch it and if you don't maneuver it and if you don't roll and groove with it, there might be somebody with a really big license that is allowed to cut and go in and take out things from lack of movement, lack of use, or from uh, avoidance of certain areas that are causing you pain, irritation, suffering, and, and all that. So, uh, my premise with so my first book is called The Role Model and it's really all about empowered self massage. I like to share with people, first of all, how to befriend your body in the context of self-touch and learn about the layers of tissues within you. It's very helpful to have some um, anatomical knowledge, but the, the fascia is so cool because it's so ubiquitous. You can't touch any part of your body that doesn't have fascial tissues that end up Stringing to something else, into something else, into something else. So, um, looking at the body, soft tissue scaffolding, educating people about that is really a blast, and it takes you into every aspect of the body. But the the short answer to does self massage actually do something? Does it actually work? Uh, yeah, there's really great evidence. Uh, I did a, I, I took a year off of writing the book I'm writing now, or actually finishing now. So, Body by Breath is the book I'm. Finishing now, I actually turn in the manuscript, complete lockdown as of Wednesday, November 30th. But during the eight years it took me to write this book, I actually took a year off to write a chapter in a medical textbook on fascia called Fascia Function and Medical Applications for my good friend, David Lizondack. And he wanted me to write a chapter on self fascia release and the evidence around it. Now I'm not a science writer, I'm an applicator, I'm also an entrepreneur. And I said, well, don't you think that might be a little bit of a conflict of interest for mm. me to write that chapter? And he said, no, I he said, be objective and throw away your bias, which of course nobody can actually do mm-hmm. um, and get into liter- the literature. And I was really nervous, Brock. I was nervous that in getting, not that I hadn't read research, but I hadn't read all the research. Yeah. I hadn't read all the things. <laughs> all those boring studies. Well, what if, what if all my premises were wrong? What if all the things I've been saying, even though they had evidence backing, but not always, they didn't always have evidence backing regarding self-massage because so many of the variables that occur in self-massage just haven't been tested yet. Right. So let's just acknowledge that first and foremost, like those haven't been analyzed in labs yet. Many things. Um, yeah.
0: Or they were analyzed in one particular demographic, but not any of the other ones. Like 20-year-old right. males seem to have every study in the world run on them, and then the rest of us are just thrown under the bus or assumed that right. we're just a different version of that.
1: And they were all with a super hard foam roller, never with a soft, squishy, pliable tool like the things I use. So that was, that was uh, like, uh, I had to think about that for a few minutes because science writing, by the way, when you write medical textbooks, there's no paycheck at the end. It's You just do it for the glory you do the glory of learning something. (laughs) And you know what? I, I did the year. I read the research. I wrote the narrative review and I learned so much. And I'm so glad that I went into it because now I can, I can actually say things definitively where maybe it was more speculative ish before, but also I feel much more confident in my own application because the, the scant research there is out there on soft tools, by the way, has, I would say, an outsize uh, amount of effectiveness compared to hard tools that initiate in most bodies a muscle bracing response mm-hmm. um, or a, a defensive posture from the autonomic nervous system just trying to protect itself against the hard tool. So hard tools can work in some bodies. Hard tools probably don't work in all bodies because of your body's innate innate protective system. This is called the muscle bracing response. It's why when you get down on the ground and you put a a hard like lacrosse ball in your tush, it feels owie, it hurts. It's not just because the tissue might be problematic, but it's also because your nervous system says, oh, don't go there, that's a hard tool, I need to protect myself from injury. But if you're using tools, that are compliant, that disarm your nervous system in the most appropriate way, you can actually get really good therapy done on yourself that improves. Here comes the results, Brock. You can improve your range of motion, which is so important, especially as we age and our uh, body's literally drying out on the inside. This can really help with mobility, with being able to walk with less fear of tripping and falling, being able to reach up overhead, being able to spin around, not in a, in a wheelie chair, but spin around your own spine, and being able to lift things like children and grandchildren and pets. So we improve our range of motion. The other remarkable thing that happens with rolling, it generates greater force production from the targeted muscle. Now, this was a completely radical uh, discovery. It's
0: counterintuitive, yeah. Mm.
1: Right. Because you would think that rolling is like stretching, right? Stretching is known to create a force deficit in muscles, right? Especially static stretching. Uh, static stretching, it basically makes the, the, the motor neuron activation a little bit sleepy. So you don't yeah. get as precise a contraction and it diminishes the force. But with rolling, for some unknown reason, they don't yet know the sensory neurons that are peppered throughout fascia, create a feedback loop with the central nervous system. And this sensory uplift that you get from rolling actually improves the precision of the efferent, the contraction that's coming out of the brain going to that targeted muscle. So not only when we're rolling are we improving range of motion, we're improving our muscle behavior so we can be more precise with our lifts we can actually probably lift more and therefore get that hypertrophy and really continue to add muscle mass as we age rather than rather than have it degrade so rolling is a great self treatment that you can do prior to workout for those benefits but post workout rolling is so helpful because it really down regulates us it helps to relax the nervous system in such a profound way that it offsets delayed onset muscle soreness. You, I mean, everybody who's overdone it knows how sore they can be for two yeah. or three days afterwards. Well, that soreness is actually not located in the muscle. That soreness is located in your fascial tissues. But the rolling post-workout and actually pre-workout too is shown to offset the, the delayed onset, which is great. So you can reduce that, that annoying pain. You can also continue to roll in the days after a workout to, again, attenuate or to, to soften that um, that pain perception. Also, rolling uh, increases your uh, the endothelial function. So we improve our blood flow. And there are other parasympathetic features, other relaxation response features that we get from rolling. And it's known to just reduce overall pain. So it's like, well, you have a pain in the neck. You can roll it out before you work out. And then there's this window of you being less less in pain or even pain less where then you can actually retrain your body correctly and over time develop new habits of body positioning and body posture so rolling is really this unbelievable proactive thing that you can do for your health well-being emotional self and and so many other things. I could go on. And that's why I wrote a book about it called yep. The Role Model. And it's very long, but uh, there's lots of lots of wonderful things in there. And then if you're really science-minded, you should take a look at um, fascia function, medical applications, and look at the closing chapter, chapter 20, which is all about what I've just been speaking of.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because like we do manual massage, just sort of Innately, like when we have a sore, a sore neck, you immediately reach up to your neck and start giving it a little bit of a, a rub or something. So it does make sense that there must be something going on there. But that's really interesting that there's so much more going on than even I actually was aware of. And I've been foam rolling for years. I just, I really enjoy it. And a lot of my clients actually. That can be a workout in and of itself, just getting onto the floor and rolling around on, on the balls and on the foam rollers and putting your body into those different geometries and different positions can actually be a workout in and of itself. So you don't have to set aside a whole bunch of time for both sometimes. So yeah, it's it's a really, really helpful thing. But you did mention a couple of things, like a, a really squishy thing. I have the gorgeous ball Yay! and my partner constantly wants to throw it out because she's like, That thing is half deflated all the time. It doesn't, it it won't hold its air anyway. Why don't you throw it away? I'm like, no, it's supposed to be like that. (laughs) But we also have these foam rollers that have like big ridges on them and stuff. It almost sounded like you were, and I'd want to put words in your mouth like, should we, is there a time and a place for each of those? When should we be using those?
1: Yeah. Tool hardness is a really under examined aspect of self massage in the 33 years that. Tools have been analyzed as a self massage or a a self myofascial release. Here's a there's a a problem right there. Like, is it self massage or is it self myofascial release? That's something I try to address in that chapter. Um, But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term self myofascial release uh, SMFR), self myofascial release is really the scientific term that that has been used in the last few decades to describe self massage. But recent research is showing that we might actually not be really releasing tissue Hmm. and may not be really creating morphological change in the tissue. So the word release can be very problematic in there. But the way I think of it is when you do self-massage, you do feel some sense of release. There is some ephemeral hedonic well-being thing that seems to shift. So I, I feel like it's an okay term because, well, maybe we're not releasing you know, all of the stuck stuff, but we are definitely releasing something. So regarding uh, regarding tool hardness, this is something that I really paid close attention to when I was looking at the research. I was really, one of the things that I saw was that in so many of the studies, as you mentioned, most studies are done on male college age athletes or male college age people that don't necessarily have conditions and a lot of uh, pain conditions rather, or uh, chronic conditions. Those are the things that I'm really interested. In. I'm interested in people in pain. I'm interested in people in all ages and stages of disease. And when you're looking at only a healthy population, you're really not going to be getting the greatest evidence or when you're only looking at athletes, you're going to only be getting a very, very narrow um, scope of of evidence. So many of the, the the things that continue to be looked at, because they're also being researched by young college-age male or um, post-grad people, are like the long jump or your running speed, and is the foam rolling really gonna affect that? And um, and those are inter- interesting to me too. I mean, performance is interesting. Yeah. You know, you would have you'd have some pretty wild results, and people in general are told to roll at their uh, at a, a at a tolerable, their maximum tolerable threshold. Of pain. And so, like, what they can get through up and down their thigh or up and down their tush or up and down their back. And I'm wondering if some of those cues are really not the right cues to give. Mm -hmm. It's not necessary to go as deep as possible with the hardest implement possible to get a result.
0: But, Jill, no pain, no gain, don't you know?
1: We don't, we don't have to create pain to relieve pain. Right. And if you, if, if you're paying attention to the science of fascia, the most innervation of fascia, the grandest scale of the fascial innervation, by the way, your fascial tissues house 250 million sensory neurons. Just to put that into perspective, your skin is 200 million and your eyes have about 120 to 150 million sensory neurons. So our fascial tissues are our most Sensory neuron-rich tissue on our body. And the majority of them are in the fatty layer. Hmm. They're just deep to the fatty layer in a membrane called the superficial fascia. So that's crazy. So you don't need to like go all the way to the bone every time. Working on the surface in in very, very skillful ways, which is hard to do with a hard foam roller, by the way, is stage one of really trying to adapt to your Pain threshold tolerance and your pressure tolerance. So these are things that that really need to be accounted for. It's not just about going deep and going hard. We can really start to work therapeutically with our brain by working through the tissues in a soft way. And so once we can initiate what what, for simplicity's sake, we can call the relaxation response, or to create a parasympathetic state in the body, then we are better able to to investigate more specific areas of restriction or even seek out those areas of restriction, those areas of origin, rather than just, you know, rolling a foam roller and, and hoping for the best. So um, what, the, what the research has said, what the clear research has said, because by the way, they're using, in, in a lot of the, the studies, they're using um, plastic roller sticks, right? So they're actually using their body to roll, right? you have to you know, force your body to roll a stick on the body or you're, you're on the ground using these hard foam rollers. One study that I found particularly interesting, and maybe your audience will find it very interesting, is that, uh, is a Korean study that was done in 2018. And this Korean study looked at folks over age 60 that had neck pain, chronic neck pain. Like, oh my gosh, what an incredible cohort. <laughs> and they- It's all of us. <laughs> <laughs> right. People with neck pain and over 60. So they placed- the folks in pain on a lacrosse ball on their suboccipitals. Now, just, just picture Those yourself. Those are the
0: two bones right at the base of your skull.
1: Yeah. Basically where your skull meets your neck, right? right? The, the, the fleshy stuff, It that should, it should be soft and fleshy, but for many of us, it's very, very rigid. We uh, have a, a high level of tension there just to try to keep our heads up, Especially if we're tend to be tech inclined, or we've developed our C shapes from sitting in cars and sitting in lounge chairs all the time and have a a difficult time really keeping our head, our brain on top of our our skeleton, and it's kind of lurching forward. So these are people with chronic neck pain. They place them uh, with lacrosse ball behind their neck, and then they also place them with a very squishy ball, a ball that's just slightly harder than the gorgeous ball. If you're not familiar with the gorgeous ball, folks, the gorgeous ball is an air-filled pliable ball like a Pilates ball. So imagine something just slightly firmer than that behind the neck. And what they found was that the, the folks who rolled or had the static position rather with the, the soft ball, um, they increased their range of motion and they also diminished their pain. The folks who had the lacrosse ball, um, they got in more pain <laughs> from laying there oh. on the on the hard ball. So they, they didn't increase their range of motion. And what they found was that the EMG was reading all sorts of muscle bracing all around. And so they didn't even get to mobilize the tissue target because the the trapezius was trying to protect, was arming the body from letting that hard ball go in. And so this is a really clear example of the muscle bracing response. And and really the conclusion of the the researchers on this particular study is, you know, way more research is needed on hardness in tools in general, but it seems that the soft tool is the clear winner here. Um, and there are a few other studies that very few. When I say a few, I mean a few, like four studies that yeah. that had a difference in hardness or a progression from soft tools tools to hard tools, and um, and I can understand that for many people, starting with soft tools is probably really the best general population prescription, and then as your body is able to um, receive that to receive the tools to receive the touch to not have such a defensive, an unconscious defensive attitude towards the harder tools, then maybe the harder tools can come into play. But in general, I just don't even go there because I, I tend to work with people in chronic pain. And you know what? I'm not in chronic pain. I love my soft tools. They feel amazing all over my body and they don't bruise. They, they don't annoy tissues. They don't pinch. Um, and uh, I never have to worry about that with uh, the with walls.
0: That makes so much sense too. After you explained how many hundreds of thousands of nerves there are in those parts of our bodies, they're going to be aware of the slightest little bit. We don't need to pummel them in order for them to to go, hey, there's something going on here. But yeah, I, I didn't know that. So, I was thinking like, yeah, we have to apply as much pressure, like basically mimic like a time massage with the foam roller. But that really does make so much sense that, our, that those parts of our bodies are so much more aware with all those nerve endings. They're more sensitive. They're you're developing those connections to the brain without turning on that, that active, uh, that, that bracing response.
1: Yeah. And it's so interesting what you said, like, because uh, I think a lot of people, um, people who've had experience with painful massage, they can grin and bear it by literally leaving the building, by letting yeah. their mind go someplace else and dissociating. And this is not really a very, tenable long-term solution because it really tells you to deny your pain and it tells you to deny your felt experience. And that's one of the things I really try to tackle in Body by Breath in the new book is you know we really do have a habit of splitting away from ourselves in order to endure, in order to just push through. And it's really not necessary. You really want to meet yourself in the present moment and have a conversation with what is. And so what you're modeling there because i know i i had a an un, i would call it an unsavory massage maybe it was a, a few months ago and i decided i'm just gonna i'll just sit here and breathe and kind of check out and hope for the best because this person really isn't taking my suggestions or really reading the room but i was like oh, let me see what happens and sure enough two days later I couldn't turn my neck. So yeah. it was too much. And I was I was willing to do run that experiment one last time. Let me just say that was the last time I'll ever run that experiment. But I'm glad I did run the experiment so that I, I came out with that uh, wonderful result of not being able to move my head. And here we are talking about it.
0: So I guess I can imagine that a lot of what we're talking about is enhanced with knowing how to breathe well and knowing how to do the, not necessarily just relaxation breathing, but actually like use your breath to enhance whatever you're doing. So, I'm guessing that you noticed some problems with the people you've been working with, you've worked with. I mean, I can't even imagine at this point, it's got to be well into the tens of thousands of people, lots and lots of people. So, what did you notice? What were the problems that you noticed that you figured? could be or might be able to be solved by teaching people a little bit more about how to control their breath?
1: When I was approached by my publisher, Victory Belt, I knew this was a golden opportunity. And I had a book in mind that I wanted to write about my approach to breathing and core control. Hmm. But I also knew that breath was not trending in 2011, 2012, it was with me and the people yeah. I taught, but not in the greater world space. Um, but I did know that this thing that I taught about fascia, especially with, with the little balls, was a rising trend. self release was really a trend that just kept growing and growing. And I knew I had to get my voice in the mix on my perspective on it immediately. And so I decided to write the role model first. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as that was published, as soon as I turn it in, they're like, what's your next book? And I, and I said, it's, the, it's my breath book. It's what I want to do. It's what I've always wanted to do. It's taken me eight years to write this book. It's um, <laughs> been really, really difficult to, to write it and finish it, especially with two small children, a pandemic, a total hip replacement, uh, and then taking that year to write that scientific review it was. And very released difficult.
0: a few other programs along the way as well. Oh I mean, yeah, the Walking with Tom. Well program in the meantime. With Katie
1: Bowman yeah. I did a bunch of stuff with Mr. Tom Myers. We have you a program just too.
0: Sitting around twiddling your thumbs. You no, <laughs> no,
1: busy. no. So um, the the book is called Body by Breath: The Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience, and it, it is a 40, 480 page book. Um, mm-hmm. That's not just about breathing. It is it is how You can, in a novel way, ignite your parasympathetic response so that you build your resiliency scope. So many of us are driven to the brink every day in our sympathetically charged life, right? We are on the zero to 60 program pretty much from from the 6 a.m. alarm clock all the way till till shut eye. And this book really teaches you novel ways to go from 60 to zero without having a crash, especially for those people that are meditation resistant or who find themselves becoming highly anxious when they start to to meditate or to even try to slow things down. So it's a book that uses four different applications. One is breathing, one is rolling, One is moving and the other is yoga nidra, also known as non-sleep deep rest. And so I teach more than a hundred different processes that engage these different tools. And you basically make a compound pharmacy from your inner medicine chest and really learn to self-soothe in the most beautiful and unique way. And the book also goes over the science of that. So the first 200 pages is all the science of those processes. Um, And of course, including lots of anatomy on the respiratory diaphragm, my very favorite muscle. And then there's 250 pages of exercises. And then there's an appendix on scars and diastasis recti
0: as well. Oh, I always say diastasis. I I don't know which one's right. Latin. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Latin. Why don't you go away already? Wait. You're right. (laughs) Do you like to shop on Amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you. If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash amazon I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. In a time where we've acknowledged, I think we've we've moved past the idea, or at least a lot of people are aware of the fact that busy, being a busy person isn't a badge of honor anymore. Like I think we've gotten to a point where people know that, but they still don't know what to do about it because they look at their, their life and they think they have to just Throw everything out in order to not be busy and not be stressed out all the time, and they're not willing to do that. So it sounds like you're you've created some or can't found some really great ways to find those moments or find what did you call the inner medicine chest?
1: Yep, inner medicine chest
0: to make that tenable, I guess, or to to yep. be able to to support, but be more resilient for sure. So instead of going through your life and figuring out like, oh, okay, well, I guess I don't have to be a member of the PTA and the SPCA and this and get rid of those things. You can actually find those moments to just like, what, take five minutes in the car to do some breathing or do some stretching before bed or I, I shouldn't, you tell me.
1: <laughs> yeah, those are all great strategies. I mean, every single exercise in the book is clocks in, write it around that 3 to 5 minute maybe 3 to 7 minute sweet spot. Wow. So just one little nugget can make a huge downshift which is also very necessary just to get perspective to be able to have insight into what you're doing in the moment or to be able to reverse course. I personally obviously have done every one of these exercises thousands and thousands of times and I love compounding them for the sense of presence and um, helpfulness they give me, they also have a residue that ends up inducing better sleep later on in the day or the night or whenever it is that you that you sleep. And so there's a there's a compounding effect of adding parasympathetic practices into your world. For the people out there that are already sort of parasympathetically induced, or like they're on the more chill side, there's also Um, First of all, it explores and explains that. And it also has a smattering of what I would call sympathetic regulating exercises as well. But those are also balance checks for anybody that goes through the book to sort of temper either side of the scale. I really see the parasympathetic sympathetic as a continuum. And for me as like a, you know, a rundown businesswoman over 50 Two school-age children, two rescue dogs. Um, it's wow. I sound I sound really intimidating there. Um, <laughs> and a business owner. Did I say
0: that as well? Uh, yeah, I think so.
1: But this is the crock pot of those practices that I think they become a part of you. At least that's what I've seen when from my students and from instagram clients from people all over the world that have adopted some of these parasympathetic practices into their life and into their world you can't understand how you didn't have this to complete you before that's Mm. that's what it feels like to me to go to these soft wonderfully mushy emotionally evocative easily accessible places that have always been there you just need to put yourself in certain positions you just need to Press a tool against you in a certain way. You just need to breathe and really sort of dilate the the muscles of respiration and allow them to constrict in certain ways. And then all of a sudden, this pharmacy opens up, and you're the one administering your you know your inner Xanax and your inner. Uh, NyQuil or whatever on all the drugs. I better get from oh, uh,
0: my favorite. Can you do some benzodiazepine?
1: Oh, sure. That too. I'll, I've got to look up. i got to start a laundry list here so I can get ready to rattle those off my tongue. But really, it does feel like that. But also, it helps you from what I've seen with my people too, is it helps you with your connections to others so that you're not just spiraling out all the time, that you can be present. And that you can learn how that presence impacts your presence.
0: You made a reference to it being a continuum. And what I'm understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is so if the goal isn't to erase or completely get rid of any sort of stress response or or live in this blissed out, zen out existence the entire time, it's to rebalance when the, when the pendulum swings too far to one side, so it's not really about curing stress, it's about managing. Is that would that be a no, good way to well, focus?
1: Well, I think when there are times when you need cope to cope and coping skills, these are there. But part of this is just it refuels your engine so that when you do perform, you're able to return to a an allostatic level, just in in a in a more balanced way. So you don't have these dramatic highs and lows. You're able to recharge and replenish in a much more safe way for your nervous system and for those around you. So, I guess I can give an example with my dog right now. So, we just adopted a rescue dog in the last 36 hours, and we've had our hand. People Haley. may have
0: heard, heard it in the background.
1: <laughs> There's two dogs getting to know each other. One dog is a nine-and-a-half-year-old pit bull mix who we rescued, uh, you know, nine nine years ago. And the other is, we think, a year and a half old. We have no idea. She's adorable and muddy. And, I mean, she's a mud. She's not muddy. She's just adorable. We have no idea. She's some kind of terrier. And I walked Haley, our older dog, with the new dog. My husband walked the new dog, doing some leash training with her yesterday. and. Haley saw a squirrel. Now, when Haley sees squirrels, she gets really excited. And she usually starts to pull on the leash, but it's totally manageable for me. Yesterday, when she saw the squirrel, I couldn't manage her. Her excitement, her amygdala, her vigilantism was super amped because she has been keyed up And I think in a little bit of a stress space being around this new dog in our house. So she's having an outsized reaction to a normal stressor. Mm. And it's so outsized, I don't want to dislocate my shoulder. Like I'm not an idiot. I'm going to let the dog go. And she's not going to get the squirrel. She's not fast enough to get the squirrel anymore. Um, But that is how um, our stress compounds itself. And we start to have uh, reactions that are make us feel unknown to ourselves. Now, if we can add some buffers in that are able to de-escalate our nervous system on a regular basis, then we don't experience those negative stressors as such a threat to all the norms of our life and our living. And so that's what I'm talking about. Like Haley needs to Haley needs to get on her balls. She needs to roll around. She needs to expand her abdomen and rib cage, get that diaphragm moving, maybe have a few more hugs. um, And I can talk her through a yoga nidra. So those would be some things that might help downregulate my dog and maybe restore, uh, you know, restore her to a more baseline. But she's just amped up because her base level stress is so much higher Um, and she's doing nothing She's doing nothing to help herself right now. Do you know? Yeah. What I'm, do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm just trying to that make that is
0: a perfect way to look at it. I yeah, I completely understand what a, what a great way to to explain that. And by the way, I would subscribe to that YouTube channel if there was a a, a dog yoga nidra <laughs> channel. That I would be all over that, watching them rolling around on their balls. Now, okay, you, we've we've sort of talked about the the idea behind it, but can you give us some real examples now of some some of the things? Like it sounds like the book, well, it doesn't sound like the book has half explanation why this is effective. Half here's the things that that you can do, which is almost like a, a field guide or a, or a, a toolkit, I guess, of of things that you can dig into. And can you give us some examples of some of the the tools that are in the book?
1: Yes. So if we look at the breathe chapter, the breathe chapter breaks down what I call the zones of respiration. So there's three zones of respiration and these zones of respiration also happen to have innervation via the vagus nerve. So maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the vagus nerve, but our vagus nerve is our chief parasympathetic nerve.
0: That's the one that makes us want to go and gamble our life savings away? I don't
1: know about that. Well, that's
0: the vagus oh. <laughs> nerve? No, not vagus nerve. Oh sorry. my
1: God. I better get ready for these yeah. puns. Okay.
0: No. So this is the nerve that's located in our, in our upper neck. Yes. Right. That actually has a lot of tie-ins to our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And yeah.
1: Yes. It's, it, it, it is huge. It is like an upside down old oak tree and it Grows from the back of your neck. Some of the some of the vagal fibers move forward and they share source nuclei with a lot of your different facial and even your vocal nerves. And a huge portion of them go all the way down into your viscera, into your guts, um, and a bunch of them pepper your lungs. And a really important branch also stimulates um, your heart. And this is one of the reasons why we actually have heart rate variability. We have two different sides of our nervous system controlling our heartbeat, the vagus actually slows down the heart. And you can really do, you can do exercises that, that help your heart rate to slow down therapeutically. You know, long exhalations are one of those things in a a very simple way. But if you, you know, if you're familiar with the, the vagus, you've probably heard of, you know, splashing cold water on your face or, Going upside down. There's a few. There's a few different sort of. They're not folklore. These are actual things that can stimulate your vagus.
0: Yeah, my partner is an emergency room nurse, and she does the dipping people really far back and then lifting them up quite quickly to get the, stimulate the vagus nerve to stop a, a supraventricular tachycardia, so the really fast heart rate. Yes, rates.
1: exactly. You
0: know, like this isn't woo-woo stuff. This is like no. they do this daily yes. to save people's lives.
1: Yes, and so. In the breathe chapter, so by the time you get to the breathe exercises, you've learned a little bit about the vagus nerve and where where it meets up with your respiratory mechanics. And of course, you can just skip all that and go right to the exercises, but it's helpful to learn that so that you know what you're doing, you know what you're impacting. And so there are these zones of respiration. There's the below the rib cage stuff. That's the, we call it the abdominal zone. There's the of the rib cage stuff. That's the thoracic zone. And then there's the supraclavicular stuff. That's where we breathe in case of emergency, right? When you see people just <gasps> lifting their shoulders up to their ears, it's not a very sustainable way of breathing, but we do that when we're startled. So there's three different zones of respiration are something to explore. we really want to sort of Hunker down on the abdominal zone and the thoracic zone so that we can trigger a very balanced uh, autonomic response in the the gut and rib cage and try to champion the range of respiration specific to the respiratory diaphragm and the other secondary muscles that help us to breathe. And so we do this by putting the body in a few different, many different positions, um, but we also use the gorgeous ball or other balls in different places within the zones to uh, either trigger the relaxation response or to get biofeedback about breathing so for example you can lay down on your side put like a pillow underneath your head and put a cordless ball or if you don't have a cordless ball you can just roll up a blanket or even roll up your yoga mat put it on the side of your rib cage and then start to do uh, certain breathing exercises or breathing in such a way that you can get the feedback of how your ribs move And we do this in a combination of not just inhales, but also very skillful exhales so that we're also training the ribs to move down. Because it's strange, most of us, when we think about breathing, probably think more about the inhale, but you can only inhale If you've created a vacuum through exhaling and so we really want to train the the full range of respiration the inhale and the exhale so there's a lot of really fun exercises to help trigger and empower your ribs to do the right thing for those oars to row the same boat so that that's one example and one way but there are there are so many different ways that we stimulate these different zones of respiration
0: I wish I'd known about that when I was coaching swimmers, because that's one of the problems that a lot of new swimmers have: is they don't exhale far enough to actually be able to inhale sufficiently to to keep swimming. So they end up going like five strokes and then having to stop and go <laughs> and start swimming again. Isn't
1: that amazing? It's yeah, so learning simple. how to
0: exhale. Who knew?
1: Who knew? You've got to create the vacuum. You've got to wipe out. You got to wring out the sponges so that they can soak up the next. The next whoosh of the air, and so having having uh, a tool like the cordless ball to pressurize your ribs and something to, to work against, really puts you into contact with the either the stiffness or the immobility or the you know the lack of movement that you didn't even know you had, and so we get that tactile feedback. Right, we have the soft tool. We already talked about the sensory neurons giving us feedback, um, but also the tool then becomes a tool. It can help to traction those stiffened intercostal muscles and the fascial tissues around them that aren't letting the ribs have that movement. So we're not just, you know, okay, let me just try to exhale. No, you have a tool there that's working with you. And that's also doing something therapeutic. So there's just a compounding effect of having this implement there as a, a secondary coach. It's not you shouting at somebody in the water. Okay. Now really get the breath out. Like how many times can you just say, okay, really get the breath out? exhale. It's it's not enough. They need something else that's going to help um, provide them with the, the perception that the ribs are now in a different position. And I need to try to work myself to that uncomfortable level of getting to that wheeze in the exhale, blowing out the 105th candle on the birthday cake so that I can pff, allow the next inhale, the next rep to occur, and then really get that oscillation of the ribs.
0: And just having somebody Touch you sometimes in a place. Like if you're trying to to fire, let's say a back, a muscle in your back that you haven't used for maybe ever, and somebody's telling you, okay, yeah, punch that muscle, like just strengthen that muscle. And you're just standing there and nothing's happening because you're just thinking about it. But then you put a little put a hand on it or put something on there, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that one. Okay, I can, I can find that just a second. <clears throat> So having that um, that rolled that gorgeous ball, having that rolled up yoga mat or whatever, maybe this is a little unscientific, but allowing your brain to create those neural connections to that actual muscle or that area of your body is.
1: That's exactly it. So that is, is it. Okay. So yeah, breathing is so cool because it's it, we, it, we feel it through a pathway called interoception, which is our physiological sense of self. But there are also aspects of it that are proprioceptive, that are our physical, mm. positional sense of self. And so it's it's this amazing blend of interoception and proprioception. So you get this, it, it, this brain map of the respiratory tissues. And how does that help? Well, it helps you with your posture. It helps you with, you know, you're pushing the, the shopping cart or pushing the baby out or pushing the poop out. These are all ways of mapping your your inner body and your postural body, so that you can be more efficient for other things. It translates into much broader application, um, not just laying down on the ground and kind of feeling good because you're breathing. These are things that your brain ultimately is going to is going to really be happy that it 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 that you finally have made these connections for it, so that your your body can um, spontaneously hold positions more effectively and more efficiently and use your breath from inside out as an additional support mechanism
0: right yeah, I was just about to ask like I know a lot of people think of like breathing as being something to do to relax but uh, you just touched on it right there that when you're when you're doing breathing in this way it can actually be focusing it can be energizing it can be more than just putting you to sleep
1: <laughs> yes it's it's you think of your breath as a transient organ. Like your breath is this structural support that enters and exits. It's not just this sort of wimpy air. No, it is like massively, a massive amount of force, life force, literally coming into and out of your body. And so learning to control that gives you the keys to the kingdom.
0: Not a lot of people know the Krebs cycle and they don't need to know the Krebs cycle, but oxygen is the key molecule well one of the key molecules in providing energy to our muscles to just do anything not just lift weights or run a marathon or something like that but to actually like have a have a good mobile life it doesn't surprise me that this has so many more applications than just being relaxed
1: yeah but you also think about the number of athletes that i work with and the people who are so overtrained and are really you know, running from something in their life, it takes a lot of work to downshift that population. So I find myself with two very distinct populations in my classroom also. I find myself with, you know, very high-performing athletes, people who are overtrained, what we call crispy tissues. And then there's those that are just like... (laughs) Mainline Yoganidra, like they're like, I doesn't want to bliss out all the time And so it's trying to find well how do I titrate a practice so that I, you are a little bit more tickled and a little bit more present and you know in the world and that this other person um, can could borrow some of that sort of bliss state. If they could just trade places maybe for a little bit, then there'd be better resilience on both ends of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, I, I was watching one of your Instagram videos earlier today, and you referred to something I'd never heard of before, but it makes sense, relaxation-induced anxiety. Oh, yeah. Now, that seems like a paradox and a half. <laughs> Can you explain <laughs> what that is?
1: I, I came across the term, good grief, when did I come across the term? I can't remember. I had come across the term some, it, I, obviously it had to be more than 16 years ago because the first time I came across a person with relaxation-induced anxiety was my now husband. So I was giving him a therapeutic massage and he was he loves massage, just loves it. And like, I don't know, a third of the way into the massage, he started to um, fidget and, and feel extremely agitated just out of nowhere. And he was like, I can't get it to stop. I can't get it to stop. And he was like rushing, and he was like doing this like Spider-Man thing. He like kept flicking his wrists. And um, and I I didn't know what was going on, but it turned out that he was getting these neural rushes down his median nerve. As his body was downshifting and relaxing, something inside of him said, this is dangerous. Uh, Freak out right now, because it was totally unconscious. He just started having these nerve rushes. And so what happens in relaxation induced anxiety is by the way, the best thing for him then is to go take a walk and uh, to let that energy cycle through his body and not just to keep forcing himself to try to relax on the table because his, his, you know, amygdala got hijacked. The squirrel, the squirrel was there and there is no way he was coming back. Of course he did come back and he gets massages and that, that doesn't happen to him very frequently, but it, it happens infrequently. And I certainly come across many students in my classroom. I mean, ever since that incident, I now know what to look for. It's those people in shavasana whose eyes cannot close. Like when they're in shavasana, they fidget the whole time or their eyes are wide open. These are people that really have a um, a challenge with stillness, that stillness is a threat to their body. And if you look at uh, one of the theories that I bring out in Body by Breath is the polyvagal theory. Which is a theory by St- Dr. Stephen Porges around the the meaning of the of the vagus and how it's been appropriated by humans through our evolution, and that we have uh, our vagus nerve. Oh my God! I have this is a lot. This is going to make your podcast way too long. So let me just say that stillness can be very very challenging for many bodies. That. When peop, some bodies enter stillness, that's when their anxiety spikes. It doesn't feel safe for them to be still. And so being constantly in active activity or in action um, quells that inner um, anxiety for them. So relaxation-induced anxiety, I read a statistic a few months ago that said something like, of people with generalized anxiety disorder, which is a lot of people, by the way, we know that from the pandemic, that something like 30 or 40% of them also have relaxation-induced anxiety, but people just really um, hide it or mask it really well. Don't quote me on that data, folks. I'm gonna go recheck that after we get off After we get off here. But it's a lot. I mean, it, it, it was a huge number of people with generalized anxiety disorder that also just have a really hard time with stillness and that's not that there's no fault on that there's no judgment on that it's just what is and so how do you help those people attenuate that response in their body so that they can reap the benefits of a parasympathetic dominant state what happens if a parasympathetic dominant state feels like a threat to you This is really a travesty, especially if you're trying to go to sleep at night and you start to get these rushes or you start Mm -hmm. to get um, pain, like unexplained pain. So um, I really love you know, in the, in the I address this in the book in a few different places, but in the specifically in that Instagram post that caught fire, by the way, <laughs> yesterday when I posted it, it's good. good. Yes, stuff. it people like, oh my god, this explains everything. I mean, it doesn't, but it it, it can. It can, it, you know, it's just one more piece of the puzzle. So, in the relaxation induced anxiety person, it is helpful to give them something to do that can slowly help them tread water a little slower. So they're not treading water, you know, like fast, like a dog, 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 but how can I tread water just a little bit slower and make that treading more in a meditative tone that I keep my muscles somewhat engaged, but not so engaged that I'm um, metabolically taxing myself at the rate that I always do. So this exercise I learned decades ago when I was a modern dancer, I used to study Butoh, which is a, a Japanese form of modern dance that came after the Second World War. I, after the devastation of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And anyway, all it is is a hand dance where you sit or stand or lie down, pick a position that your body can tolerate because you know your body, you know what makes you most fidgety, don't go into that position, go into a position that you can tolerate. And the dance is this, you set a timer, you can set it for as, as, as short as a minute and as long as 20 minutes. We've got one hand in a fist, the other hand is open. You press the timer, and then, whatever that time duration is, by the end of it, you will have switched the hand that was open and the hand that was closed. And the timer might go off you know, when I'm halfway, or it might go off at the end. It doesn't matter. It's that you're you're just being present to that process of one hand opening and one hand closing simultaneously. And it, it's an amazing, amazing focusing exercise that gives you this incredible windshield wipe of your brain. And it just happens to give you something to focus the whole time on. And you can do this anywhere, anywhere, anytime. And you don't have to worry about the breath. What's my count? Don't worry about it. Just let your breath come and go. Focus on the one hand is opening while the other hand is closing.
0: That's so smart. It, it reminds me of just trying to make people with ADHD, especially kids who haven't learned to, to regulate it, yet trying to make them sit down and be quiet but still pay attention. It seems so reasonable and so obvious when when you think about it, but it's not it's not what we've been doing for so long now.
1: Well, I think there's also a judgment on people who can't meditate and that meditation is this ideal state.
0: And it must be done perfectly.
1: Yeah. And you're always feeling lesser than because like, I'm not a good meditator. Like I like yoga nidra. For me, yoga nidra is like, oh, I cannot. I just love it so much. I love it. That's my favorite way of meditating. But I also love the hand dance meditation. And I love that there's another one in the book called Rolling Over in Bed, where we do these incredibly slow dynamic um, exercises that take attention. Again, they don't rob you of Metabolic excess, so you really feel refreshed after. And they have this effect of of decompressing your body, so you get this other uh, these other benefits, these massage benefits to them. Whether you're using the balls or whether you're just using position on the floor. So there's so many different there's so many different events like this in the book. There's also if you really like the hand dance meditation, I have an online classroom called Move, Breathe, Roll, and I created mm-hmm. a class during uh, you know, I created a class for the for my uh, my people which you could be a people, you can just take the class or you can be a subscriber. It doesn't matter. Um, but it's called meditation in motion or motionless meditation. So it gives you five different meditation styles that are body-based, that um, are perfect for people who have relaxation-induced anxiety.
0: Or may suspect they do. Or or just want to try something new and exciting and fun.
1: Or like novel meditation. Yeah. If you're like, I just love all the meditation. Give it, bring it.
0: Or want to learn more about, about breathing. All of this stuff is is just so helpful and and so encouraging that we can continue to, to live our lives and bring in these modalities to just help make everything a little more calm, a little more focused, de-hectify our lives because we do sort of have, we're living in a hectic and stressful time. And I think every generation has said that, but I feel like we really own this one. <laughs> we're the most messed up. Yay! We're the most stressed out.
1: <laughs> it's all those. Honestly, I think it's all. The, I do think it's all the tech. I mean, we've never had so much stimulation coming in, you know, consistently like this all the time. So, I'm yeah, with you. So
0: what's the phrase? We're we're the gorilla in the arcade. <laughs> it's co- surrounded by flashing lights and carbohydrates, and stuff, <laughs> but we're still. These primates that don't quite understand what's happening <laughs> yeah. to us—that's the healthy deviant. Um, I'm forgetting her name. That was from her book. I, I think that's a fantastic analogy. So sure. finding ways to get our inner ape to calm down a little bit and and just work a little bit better with our with our physiology. So I'll put all the the links to everything in in the show notes at brockarmstrongcom jill. But where else can people find you? Where should people go to? Well, this will come out very soon, so you're still in pre-order pre-orders oh, at this point.
1: Yeah, we are definitely in pre-orders. So the book is released February 28th. Um, okay, that's Tuesday, February 28th. If you're super excited about getting some of the information that's in there, uh, we have some very robust articles on our website. My website's tuneupfitness.com. There's a great article on the respiratory diaphragm. There. There's also another great article on. Um, the vagus nerve. And there's another great article on fascia and rolling. So you can already learn some of the scientific tidbits that are, you know, immensely expanded upon in the book. And the best place to stay in touch with Mimi is on social via Instagram. I'm the Jill Miller on Instagram and, and my company is TuneUp Fitness. So they're the ones that do the giveaways. So you must follow them as well (laughs) because I'll post pictures of my dog and, um, (laughs) how I'm dealing with, with this new rescue dog, as well as my children and other, and other impulsive thoughts that I have throughout my life.
0: I will put links to all of that stuff. And thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this great knowledge. I Honestly, I, I, I'm i going to I'm not going to throw away my really hard foam rollers, but I'm definitely going to put them farther back in the, the cupboard and start focusing on those softer things again. Because I'm definitely one of those people who got a little bit uh, overzealous with the, it's got to hurt to be effective.
1: If I just turn one person today onto their soft tools, I've done my job. Thank you, Brad. It's me.
0: <laughs> you turned <to> me. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. We'll talk soon.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Second Wind Fitness. I'm Brock Armstrong, and my guest has been Jill Miller.